when are you going to start treating me like an adult? That's the frustrated cry from child to parent, uh, usually across a whole range of, range of ages and stages. And whilst there is no doubt that sometimes parents need to remember that the baby is no longer three but 30 years old, the standard response to the question, when are you going to start treating me like an adult is? When you start behaving like one. That's effectively the situation that the Corinthians are in. So let's have a look. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So let's be clear right front. No, Paul is not questioning their salvation. He's not suggesting that there are levels to following Jesus from subpar to superstar, but he's saying that Corinthians' lives are just not lining up with the gospel. They're filled with the Spirit, but they're not living in line with the Spirit. In fact, they might have been going backwards because whilst when Paul planted the church, he rightly spoke about them as infants in the faith, they were just getting going. Now, years later, he still cannot speak to them as mature or even maturing as they haven't moved beyond their babyish behaviour. Whilst back in chapter 2, Paul said that they were merely human, now in chapter 3, as he also refers to them as merely human, the word he uses is different, conveying a sense that they are not just people, but they are actually very determinedly only human. They are actively resisting the work of the Spirit in them. And the evidence, Paul says, well, it's plain to see. Have a look at verse 3. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? The diagnosis is that they're babies. The evidence is their behaviour. The cause is because they have forgotten to whom they belong. The Corinthians are stuck in these battle of the Bible studies. There's rival factions, they're idolising particular leaders, and they're pitting them against one another. They're asserting that their form of Christianity is far superior to the one over there, just next door. And, and tragically, as they critique the other and they boast in whom they belong, the bizarre spiritual competition and their the longing to belong is actually tearing them apart. Factionalism and personality cults are tearing apart God's church. And of course, we shouldn't just think for a moment that this is just some sort of ancient problem for an ancient church. Modern Christianity, of course, can end up lining up behind their ministers, preachers, and music leaders. So often when I meet other ministers, the very first question of me after they ask what is my name is, which theological college did you go to? We can end up wearing the names of those we follow as some sort of badge of honour or authenticity of orthodoxy. Not necessarily because of doctrinal soundness, which of course matters, Note, there's no question about the soundness of Apollos or Kephas here. But we can end up lining behind particular leaders because of personal preferences or personalities that attract. 
we can end up drawing our sense of ultimate belonging, not from Jesus, but a particular leader, brand, or style. There's no doubt, of course, that some leaders, will they long for a culture of adulation, and they might do lots of things to even create that. But Paul says, hero worship, even of good leaders, and of those leaders who don't try to encourage that culture, well, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity. So what's going to help the Corinthians to grow up? They need to have a right view of their leaders and a right view of themselves. So we see in three images, we are God's co-workers, building on the foundation of Christ together as God's temple. So first, we are God's co-workers. Let's have a look. Verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Paul is saying, Apollos and I should not be the object of your adoration. Leaders are important. I'm so thankful for faithful leaders of the gospel. Just this week, there was a great article in the Gospel Coalition published on how to best support ministers, that we should pray for them, for the protection, for the growing of the work, for the building of unity, for strong leadership. But leaders are not superheroes. They shouldn't become idols. Why? Because Paul says they are merely servants, all with the same gospel. They're co-workers. So note where Paul is placing the emphasis, not on the significance of the leader, but on the significance of the work they share, of that entrusted to them. When Paul says that they are servants, this word, it's a pretty interesting word. It carries both a sense of someone who comes under the authority of a master, but it is also, before it took on other, other meaning in the life of the church, its original context was for those who waited on tables. And so Paul is saying, that's what Apollos and he are. They are servants. He's saying we have the most extraordinary privilege of both, both of us bringing the gospel to you. Therefore, thinking that you're superior, that because you're on Team Paul or Team Apollos, is, is kind of like being at a restaurant, and then as your food is delivered, different waiters bring it to different tables, starting fights between tables that you think your meal is better because of who brought it to the table when there was one chef who cooked the meal. The waiter is important, leaders are important, we should appreciate them care for them, encourage them, listen to them, God will use different leaders at different times and different stages of our lives. But whilst they may have come to believe through Paul or Apollos, ultimately we're being reminded that it is really the work of God. Now, the, the full force of that, I think, the reality of that is inescapable just by looking at these few verses that we just looked at before. Pa Paul, I want you to know, he densely packs six critical points about leaders that we really need to hear. So I'll give you the six really densely packed points that Paul gives. So when he reminds us the servants, that the leaders are servants, they're not the guests of honour. Second, they have gifts and platforms, not because they are awesome, but because the Lord has assigned them to them. Third, they serve 
various functions, one plants, another waters, but they have one clear purpose. The, the power they demonstrate does not reside in them, because Paul reminds us it's God who does the growing, that it won't be the followers who ultimately reward or judge the leaders, but God will do that himself. And the people, well, they don't belong to the leaders, but we're reminded they're God's field and God's building. So two clear implications to the church and to leaders. So first to the church. Not only will following particular leaders lead to nothing, if they're the object of our adoration, for they will fail, leave or die, to elevate leaders above Jesus, to gain our ultimate sense of belonging from them is madness, and it will often lead to petty infighting and critiquing that only serves to tear apart God's church. But also to leaders, to serve God using the gifts and the platforms that he has given with one purpose to proclaim his gospel is not by our power but the power of God, not to our people, but to a people who God has won by his grace at great cost. It's a phenomenal privilege. Sharing in the, the long line of faithful believers who've planted and watered, sharing in the wide breadth of faithful believers planting and watering today. I remember just a couple of years ago having really the most profound privilege of being invited to come and speak to someone's adult daughter who was in hospital. And she was at the very end of a very long battle. She wasn't sure about her faith and what her family longed for more than anything at all was that she could be sure. And I have to be honest, I felt so privileged to go, but I wondered, what could I possibly add on top of a lifetime of faithful witness? Went along and as we chatted and we opened up and read from Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you are saved. She, she shot up out of bed and she said, really? Is that it? And she cried out to the Lord and rejoiced. But it wasn't me who brought her to faith. I arrived at a particular time. After a lifetime of nurturing by her parents and after who knows how many people have been faithfully praying for her day in, day out and with the Spirit of God at work. I just happened to stand at the end of the line of a lifetime of faithful witnesses. One planted, another watered, but only God makes them grow. And phenomenally, that's the story that we're all part of as co-workers in the gospel. Second, we build on the foundation of Christ. So let's pick up verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, the work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's 
work. So remember the issue that Paul is addressing here. There is all these people running around. There's no shortage of people with, with eloquent, sophisticated arguments who, who have brilliant presentation. But Paul's telling us that if you're not building on the foundation of Jesus, it's all superficial. The foundation isn't Paul. The foundation isn't Apollos. The foundation is Jesus. Now, of course, when Paul goes through that long list of various materials, discounting them, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hail, straw, this isn't some sort of theological premise to say that all that we should do in the life of the church uh, should be mediocre or look mediocre. But this is a biblical conviction to ensure that everything we do comes back to Jesus. When Paul talks about the materials, the point is not that anything built of wood or gold, or that list, is, is totally suspect, and we should uh, do a materials order of our building and make sure we've got none of that happening really quick. Most of it's built of concrete, so we might think we're safe. But it's a warning that if the substance of what we do is mere looks, it's not going to last. There's a warning. Don't be attracted just to that which looks brilliant. Be discerning to seek that and be part of that which builds on the foundation of Jesus. If you tamper with the foundation, it will not last. Venice looks amazing, but it's sinking into the ocean. See, whilst we might be filled by the superficial, God is not. God sees right through it, and God will determine if we've been faithful to Jesus' instruction. God will be the one who ultimately declares the quality of the work. That's why leaders shouldn't just be trying to impress people, but being faithful to God. For there will be a day, Paul says, verse 13, it says, the day when the fruit of our labour will be tested with fire. Uh, fire throughout the Bible, of course, is often used as an image of testing and judgment. It refines that which is good, but destroys that which is combustible. Paul is not talking about condemning a person here. He's not questioning their salvation but he's talking about the testing of our work that the true nature will be disclosed, it will be made known. So verse 14, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the flames. Whenever I hear this section, I think it is such a, a sobering thought, if that at the end of my life, when it all is laid bare, if all that I toiled for amounted to nothing. If it was just all for show. If it was just all wasted. But Paul is clear about where we should direct our energy. We can so honour, so often, if we're really honest, be really worried about how things look. If it appears or if it sounds impressive. You know, three times Paul says it's not about the quality of the materials, it's not how it looks, but actually the work. So verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is. Fire will test the quality of each person's work. Verse 14, if what has been built, that is the work, survives. There's a clear test. Are you building on the foundation of Jesus? Only the true teaching that which is centred on and in Jesus crucified and risen, only that will stand 
God's judgment on the last day. And the prize, or the prize is not salvation, which we've been given by grace, but the prize and reward is our master's praise. I think it's so encouraging that even though we, we might often think that what we do, or what we're building in our lives for God's glory is, is, is meagre, we think it might not look very impressive, we might even get into the trap of comparing it with other people in other places, that actually won't be tested by how impressive it looks. They'll be tested by that which lasts. It's why as a church, as we look long-term as a community, our vision 2025 is all about expanding our vision to make mature disciples of Jesus for God's glory. That we would be really intentional about what we're building. That it would keep coming back to Jesus. I think it's so amazing to consider that, that here in Toowoomba, so some 2,000 years ago, after the church in Corinth was planted... A lot of what we do, you know, it looks pretty different, I'd imagine, to 2,000 years ago in Corinth. But we still have the exact same foundation. It's also amazing to think that in 100 years' time, if the Lord has not yet returned, that no one might remember any of our names, but that they all might be professing Jesus' name in some way, in some part, because God enabled us to build upon the foundation of his Son today. Finally, we are together God's temple, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? When Paul refers to the temple here, he's addressing both the boasting, uh, the low view of themselves and too high view of themselves. So they have a too high view of themselves, boasting against other groups, but they also have too low view of themselves, forgetting that they are God's temple. When, when Paul says they are the temple, he's referring to the holiest of holies. It's the inner sanctum, the very presence of God. It's an incredible claim that now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God dwells with his believers. So God's temple is it's not a grand building. It's not one of the wonders of the world. But actually, in this context here, it's a small, squabbling group of believers in Corinth, along with all those who call on the name of the Lord even today. I think we can so often take that for granted. They are, as Paul reminded them right back in chapter 1, those sanctified in Christ, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such amazing news. Uh, no longer is a physical temple the place where people go to meet God, but because Jesus died and rose, the Holy Spirit dwells in all who trust in Jesus. So really, three quick implications that we are God's temple. One, if we are God's temple together, then it means no one is greater than the other. The Corinthians, they are putting people on, on pedestals. One group thought themselves greater than the other. But in God's kingdom, there is only one lifted high and one body of believers below. Two, how can we possibly treat one another, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, with contempt? How could we treat them with anything less than love when God's Spirit dwells in us? If we do that, it fails to recognise who the other is. It fails to recognise who the Spirit is leading us to be. 
and it is also a terrible witness to the world. Third, if we are God's temple, then how we behave matters. There's a sacredness. We are, we are called to be God's holy people. Not babies, but living in line with the Spirit. I think one of the most memorable examples of Jesus being righteously angry, of course, was at the temple, when money changers had made a total mockery of what was meant to be a sacred space. They, they had become stumbling blocks and gatekeepers of who could meet with God. And Jesus ripped through, whipping his cord and overturning tables. So we shouldn't be surprised when we read Paul saying in verse 17, in the knowledge that God's people are now that temple, that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Incredible warning of how we treat God's temple, of God's church, that it really matters. The church, the body of Christ, is precious to God. Each local church, local community is precious to God. The church was bought with Christ's own life. To build with shoddy material is one thing, but to seek to destroy God's temple, to make what is holy unholy, is quite the other. Now, in light of what Paul has been saying about building on the foundation of Jesus, we must heed that those who lead people away from the foundation of Jesus, then they will be held accountable. Paul wants the Corinthians to take seriously who God has called them to be. And the biggest threat to them, the biggest risk for deception, verse 18, he says, do not deceive yourselves. So what does he long for them? Verse 21. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So how can the Corinthians be so secure in who they are and to whom they belong that they would abandon boasting and find their, not find their ultimate worth in human leaders, that they would abandon trying to compete against one another and rival factions, that they would stop pursuing human wisdom that looks impressive but it amounts to nothing? By remembering that all that belongs to Christ is ours and is to Christ to whom we ultimately belong. For it was through the cross, God's wisdom, that our ultimate belonging has been won. We are God's co-workers, building on God's foundation together as God's temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that it was in your wisdom, in the wisdom of the cross, that we can belong to you. We thank you so much that it's through Jesus' death and resurrection, with the gift of your spirit, that you have made us and set us apart to be your people, that you have entrusted us with the task that we are co-workers in the gospel. Lord, please help us to only build on the foundation of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you convict us of anything that we do, that we do just to look impressive or to win favour with people, but instead that we would be faithfully building on that which lasts, that which will be tested and that which will be rewarded. Lord, may we be a community 
that seeks to glorify you and you alone, to point to your Son that many may come to put their trust in him. Lord, please help us to treat one another with care, to love your people and your church, that we may together take our part in sharing the gospel with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.